Um, if you are new here or um, I haven't had a chance to introduce myself, my name is Christoph. I am one of the pastors here at Faith, and I am blessed to be the minister to youth and families. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and over the past few weeks, we have been going through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is the first great teaching in Jesus's ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. And we are in a particular block of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is taking both Scripture, which would have been the Old Testament in this time, Jesus is taking both Scripture and commentary on that Scripture um, by saying, you have heard it said, and then he is going to adjust and readjust the understanding of these teachers by saying, but I have told you. And there is only one person in the course of all of history who can do this with absolute authority, and that is Jesus, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, correcting the understanding of his very own word. Um, and Jay has mentioned this over the past few weeks that we have been going through these different phrases, but I think it's important enough to remind ourselves that Jesus is not negating the Old Testament. He is not going, you have heard it said, but I tell you. In fact, what is happening is he is addressing um, those who have taken Scripture, those who have taken God's law, those who have taken these teachings by God, and they have twisted it by the authorities and leaders of that time. Um, in the time that this was preached, there were those who valued the appearance of holiness far more than the actual pursuit of holiness as defined by God himself. Um, and this is not something that is uncommon to our day and age where we are concerned more with how people perceive us more than how God sees us. Jesus, later on in his ministry, actually addresses this in Matthew 22 and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plates, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. It is crucial that we would hear Jesus' words in this Sermon on the Mount and not worry about the outward appearance, but rather the inward pursuit of holiness. Our time is spent well in Jesus' sermon, but we need to be careful not to do what the scribes and the Pharisees of that time did by going through them and trying to explain away what Jesus is saying or try to over-commentate it. Instead, what we need to do this morning, and this is going to be my prayer, is that we would listen to Jesus' words and we would allow the Holy Spirit to convict us where we need convicting so that the inward cup may be cleaned. So, with that in mind, let's pray. And then we will read these passages together. Lord, thank you for this morning. It is such a blessing to gather with brothers and sisters and sing of your goodness. Um, God, I am, I am so thankful to just hear the voices of people singing of your goodness. God, I pray that as we spend our time in your word this morning, that you, um, you would speak clearly. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to say Lord, I pray if, that there, if we walked in here this morning more concerned with our outward appearance, that you would convict us of that and you would help us to, um, to search for inward holiness, for inward cleanliness. God, I pray that um, the words that are preached this morning are from you and not from me. I pray that you would help me to, um, to just be faithful to your text. God, I pray that if there's anywhere that I, I am unfaithful in your text this morning, that you would help close um, the ears of those who are here. 
God, I pray that you would transform us more to look like you so that we could shine your gospel, your goodness in a world that desperately needs it. God, you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one, one last thing, actually, before we dive into this passage. Um, I, I felt like this was important to say is when we read our Bible, sometimes we have different um, section headings in um, the Bible. And these were not in the original manuscripts, but they're put into our Bibles. They're useful tools to help us when we study God's Word. But sometimes they can kind of serve as distractions to break up um, sections of Scripture that go really well together. And so we're actually going to be combining two sections that may be broken up in your Bible into two different sections. We're going to be combining these two because I think that they go together so well. So Matthew 5, 38 through 48. And we are going to go through this whole passage and then we are going to break it up. So um, Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also. Turn to, uh, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not, e do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the way we're going to approach this, this morning is we're just going to go through it a little bit section by section. Um, and just unpack it. So Jesus starts off by saying, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this is a direct quote. It's a, it's a reference to the Old Testament, specifically two passages. Exodus 21, 23 through 25, uh, which says this, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And then also Leviticus 24, which says, whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall also be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, this passage is known as the Lex Talionis or the law of retribution. Now, I would not normally use the Latin, but I thought it, was, uh, it rolls off the tongue, and it was a fun word to use, and I thought I would give you a fun word to use over the course of the week. So, lex talionis. Um, and I know how to pronounce it because I sat on my computer clicking the little microphone button on Google like 15 times so I wouldn't forget it. Uh, it is important for us to go back to what Jesus is quoting in order to understand what he is teaching. The law of retribution was meant to be a civil guideline for the people to use to enforce justice. Now, oftentimes, when we think about justice, we think about the offended and we think about the offender. We think of right and wrong. Eye for an eye 
and tooth for a tooth. The reason the law of retribution was so important, especially in this post-Exodus life for the Israelites, is that justice, justice often took on a form of revenge. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was set into place not only for the offended to get justice, but also for, to protect the offender from receiving a penalty far worse than the offense. You see, in those days, an eye for an eye looked far more like an eye for the life of your entire family. Revenge and justice are not the same thing, and the law was set in place to make sure that the offended received justice and that the offender did not receive revenge. Justice is important, and proper justice even more so. The law was meant to be a safeguard for proper justice, not a tool to stir revenge in the hearts of men. And this is important. This is really important because Scripture is littered all over with calls for justice. In fact, Jesus, in his ministry later on in Matthew, calls out the scribes and the Pharisees for caring more about themselves than justice. In Matthew 23, verse 23, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others.'" And on top of that, Scripture has calls for justice all over. Isaiah 1, 16 through 17, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant. He's talking here, by the way, to Israel, to God's people. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom I sold delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Amos uh, chapter 5, verse 23 through 24. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melodies of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Psalm 33, verse 5, love, righteousness, and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And then Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true True judgments show kindness and mercy to others. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. It is all over. God is serious about justice. He calls us to be serious about justice. But this is the problem, is that justice in the hands of man, in the hands of those who are broken, oftentimes gets twisted. The example that comes into my brain automatically is, parents, you probably have heard this statement a million times, that's not fair. No? Please, can I get an amen on that one? I am not alone on that, right? Okay, right? Oftentimes, my kid will proclaim something is not fair when, one, it is not a matter of whether it is fair or not, and two, uh, they don't actually have the ability to perceive the bigger picture on what is fair or not fair. We, too, have a distorted view on what is fair and not fair. 
when we enforce right and wrong outside of the boundaries of what God calls right and wrong, we do the opposite of what justice was meant to do. Justice was meant to protect and we destroy. So back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preparing his listeners to have a more robust understanding of what is justice. And much like when he taught about anger and the dangers of hanging on to anger in our hearts, Jesus is now going to take the, you have heard it was said, but I tell you, and he is going to say, this is what justice looks like. This is what it looks like for there to be justice. And what does he say? But I say to you, back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the, also, the other also. And if anyone would sue you, And take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So what is the Christian response when wrong is done to us? Well, first of all, we do not sin against others because we have been sinned against. That is baseline. But then Jesus takes it a step further. Not only do we not seek revenge, We seek good. He doesn't finish this section by saying, don't resist evil. He very easily just ended it right there. Instead, he calls Christians to do good. Someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Someone wants to sue you, go above and beyond in doing good for them. Give them your cloak as well. Someone wants you to go a mile with them, go two miles. And all of these have specific cultural context behind them, but the one that has always stood out to me, and and maybe you've heard this one explained before as well, is um, the slapping across the cheek. There's there's something specific about getting slapped across the cheek. Jesus actually says um, the right cheek. Jesus states the right cheek. Now, in this time, someone would have picked up on that because uh, oftentimes they would think of the right hand Right? And if you're, if you're slapping someone with the right hand, you're slapping with the palm, but if you're slapping them with your right hand on the right cheek, it's a, it's a, it's a backhanded slap. Right? In, in this time, this would be an affront to one's dignity. This was not just a physical injury. This was an affront to that person's dignity. This was meant as far more than just physical harm. This was meant as an insult to the very fabric of that person. It was meant to be humiliating. It was meant to be degrading. This is actually addressed in a, in a book called the Mishnah, which is a, um, a collection, it's a book, a collection of Jewish traditions and teachings that were used to give uh, more guidelines for how um, the Israelites were meant to um, interact with each other. And they actually address, if somebody slaps you backhanded across the right cheek, what the due penalty to that person was. And here's what's interesting. Do you know what the due penalty was for somebody who slapped you across the right cheek? It would actually be double that of the physical harm. Double that. So in the teaching of that time, they would say, if somebody slaps you across the right cheek, you get two slaps on them. So for Jesus to say, listen, somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek, was a pretty big deal. He was saying, there are going to be those 
who are going to seek to degrade you, to humiliate you, to insult you. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You know why? Your dignity doesn't come from other people. Who you are does not come from the way that other people see you. You see, if your identity is in how God sees you, if that pursuit, if that inward pursuit of holiness comes from how God sees you, then there's no amount of degradation or humiliation that can be done to you because it does not matter how they see you. A friend of mine was recently telling me about their work situation. They've just taken on a new job and their coworkers love the bar scene. They're all about the bar scene. And they, are, they continue to try to get her to come with them to the bar. And the problem is, is that uh, she continues to say, no, it's not, it's not my thing, I'm not going to do that. No, it's not my thing, I'm not going to do that. And it, it starts with just invites to all of a sudden it kind of becomes um, ridicule of this person and kind of insult, and then it becomes gossip, and then uh, the person is just kind of seen as an outsider. What is the response to the situation? Is it to double the harm? Is it to gossip back? No. It's love those coworkers. Do good to them. Turn the other cheek. You know, Paul reminds us that justice is ultimately in the hands of the Lord. Romans 12, 19 through 21, Behold, uh, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The call of the Christian, the call of those who have been saved by grace, by the work that Jesus Christ has done, is to do good. You know, and maybe it's not a coworker. Maybe it's someone at home. Maybe the hardest place to practicing forgiveness right now and, and getting rid of vengeance is with those who are closest to you. I remember one of the greatest pieces of advice Sarah and I were given early on um, in our marriage was to outdo one another in grace. Just outdo one another in grace. Uh, there was a couple that we met with regularly early on in our marriage, in the first year of our marriage, and they told us not to avoid confrontation because that's just not going to be possible. But instead, when confrontation comes up, I can speak, um, outdo one another in extending grace. You know, I was, I was sharing a story um, on our church podcast, and I think it fits here as well, is that my son is coming up on two years old pretty soon. And I am not sure what it is. I have Two, he has two older sisters, so I have two daughters and, and a son who's almost two. And for some reason, he is far more destructive than my daughters were at that age. I don't know what it is. There's some, something baked inside of him. Uh, he feels the need to exert his dominance over that glass bowl that was holding goldfish crackers in it, and I don't know why, right? But he takes it, and it goes to the floor, and it shatters everywhere. And I feel like I, right now, it's like at least once a week that there's just some new thing that is um, broken in our house. What is, what is my reaction to that? Is it on me to then go to one of his toys and smash it in front of him? <laughs> so, 
Some of you are making me really nervous with how you laughed about that. <laughs> Take a mental note. We might need to do like a sermon on confession or something. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> no. Not only am I called to extend grace and forgiveness, but it's on me to actually go and confront him in that situation because he's terrified of the glass bowl that just shattered. And so I get, I get him and I pick him up and I love him and I tell him, it's okay. I love that Jesus unpacks the law of retaliation this way because it is the outpouring of grace and mercy that he has shown to us, right? If we were to ultimately receive the due cost of our sin, of our offense to God, there would not be one of us who spends eternity with the Lord. There would not be one of us who could stand in the presence of the Lord. We are dead in our sin, and death is the ultimate consequence to our sin. But, as we are reminded in Ephesians chapter 2, God does not enact that on us. Instead, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, indeed. Our sin is a direct offense to God, and yet his response is to do good to us. When I am chasing down idols, when I'm putting myself before my family, when I am responding out of anger, when I find myself turning toward the pleasures of the world, God looks to me and says, I paid that price. I paid the price you owed. I forgive you, he says. I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I want to breathe new life into you. That is God's response to our offense. That is the gospel. And just as a side note, maybe you are in here this morning and you have never responded to that. Maybe you have never said, I am going to follow Jesus. I, I would ask you, what's stopping you? Do you think that somehow you have ran so far that God can't catch up or that God isn't there with you? Do you think that somehow God doesn't know the very depth of your soul, every single thought you have ever thought, and he still loves you? There's no offense too deep that you have committed that God's grace cannot reach. And I would encourage you this morning, if you have not responded to that call, that you would find one of the pastors here, one of the elders, or you would just find someone in here, talk to them. We still have a whole other section, though, to unpack here, um, starting in verse 43. So um, let's continue on. I'll clear this. So back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus is going to address another section of the Old Testament. He's going to say this, You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay. 
So Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you notice something a little bit different between this and what Jesus says here? Yeah, there's something missing. There's nothing in there about hating your enemy. And Jesus is specifically addressing this. God, uh, Jesus is not somehow changing God's law through the Sermon on the Mount. I think it was really important to say that. I was, I was listening to a podcast this weekend, and, and, and it, was, it was a discussion between uh, somebody who kept saying that, oh, Jesus was changing. What it, it's, it's not that. He's not changing it. Rather, he's actually exposing those who have twisted God's law to justify their own pride. Hating your enemy was something that was added onto loving your neighbor, as if it was like some sort of obvious tandem, like you're going to love your neighbor and you're going to hate your enemy. But the scripture never says that. They were reading into that, and then they were teaching it. And Jesus said, no. Again, this is the outside of the cup trying to look pristine while inside of the cup there is poison and mold filling it up and they continue to drink from this cup. And Jesus says, clean the cup. So Jesus is going to address this. But I say to you, back in Matthew chapter 5, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." Listen, anyone who thought in this moment that loving your neighbor was somehow an excuse or an opportunity to hate your enemy is shut down by Jesus. Jesus affirms the law that was given to the Israelites all those years ago and then shuts down this extra commentary that was somehow leading to the allowance of, of hating others. Here's the thing, Jesus doesn't just stop at tolerate your enemies. He doesn't say, love your neighbors, tolerate your enemies. He doesn't say, love your neighbors and begrudgingly exist with your enemies. He doesn't say, love your neighbors and put passive-aggressive bumper stickers mocking your enemy's political candidate of choice on your car. (laughs) Sorry if that one was too real. Um, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus not only calls us to not hate our enemies as if that's the stopping point. He calls us to an active love of our enemies. He says that we are called to do this because we are called to look like our Father in heaven. 
see God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. I think somewhere in the chaos of the world, we have forgotten a very fundamental truth. I think this was forgotten back then to those who were hearing Jesus, and I think this is a fundamental truth that we in 2023 have also forgotten, is that all of humanity was created in God's image. If you remember last week in Jay's message about lust, he talked about how part of the destructive nature of lust is that it dehumanizes people. It's dehumanizing. And we do the exact same thing. We dehumanize people when we remove the image of God from them. When we no longer look at them in the way that God originally created them, which was in his image. In, in Genesis 1, 27, he specifically says that he created male and female in his image. You know why God is so harsh about idol worship in the Old Testament, in idol worship just in general? You know, in that time there were pagan re- religions, and I mean, there, there's, there still are today, that had these representations or these images of God that represented what they believed um, were God. And they would worship things from like the planets and suns and the moon. They would make images out of animals, and some religions still do today, and they say that this is the image of God. They would take things in nature and carve images out of them and say, this is God, trees and stones and the like. And say that these are representations of God. God wanted his people to have nothing to do with creating and worshiping idols. Why? Because he baked his image into creation from the very beginning, into humanity. There is a high demand on us loving other people because other people were created in his image. So we're not called to just love when it is easy. Because we share a few things in common with our brothers and sisters. We are created in his image. We are also stained by rebellion. We are also sinful, broken people. Our hearts are bent towards the things of this earth. Our hearts are bent away from the things of God and towards other things. If we were to see our enemies in that light, it'd be a lot easier to love them. We're not called to love when it is easy. We're called to love when it is hard, when it is difficult against those who persecute us, against those who are considered our enemies. They are created in God's image. And Jesus gives us a very specific call to action. He gives us a very like, okay, how am I supposed to love my enemies? How am I supposed to love those who are difficult to love? And Jesus gives a very specific thing for us to do. And oftentimes this is one of those, one of those things that we just consider a last line of defense. Like, well, at the very least we could pray. 
at the very least we could pray? This is like, this is the thing we can do. This is paramount. This is, this is the fundamental thing we can do is to pray for them. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. What I love about prayer is that when we begin to take, our, we begin to, take to our knees and put those who have wronged us up in prayer, those who have persecuted us up in prayer to the Father, one, we are acknowledging and surrendering justice into God's hands where it properly belongs. Two, when we pray for those who oppose us, we humanize, we, we help rem- remind ourselves of that image of God. And three, when we remember the fact that they are created in God's image, it should stir up in us a remembrance for their need for the gospel. I am so grieved sometimes at the way that we act against people that we perceive to be our enemies and those who persecute us because we act defensive, we get argumentative. We act as though clever, clever arguments are going to stomp our enemies or what have you. But Jesus says, pray. Those very people that you are praying for are just as worthy of God's grace and love as we are. We need to stop acting, by the way, like we're not going to see persecution. or encounter those who are opposed to the gospel. I remember early in my walk with Jesus, I was saved when I was 14, and I remember hearing um, whenever there's any sort of idea that there might be persecution coming for the church, I remember hearing, um, hearing that with a little bit of fear, and then there was always the, well, throughout church history, persecution has always been what has sparked revival into the church. And yet, when I see any sort of potential persecution coming for the church, we act as if, like, it is the worst thing. We act as if it's an actual threat to the gospel, as if some sort of Earthly law can be a threat to the gospel. There there is no threat to the gospel that surprises God. In fact, throughout history, we have seen that God uses those perceived threats to the gospel to actually further his gospel. God uses the brokenness of this world to bring his good news into the world to those who need to hear it. There is no law the government can pass, no book that some author can pen, no podcast that some broadcaster can submit that's in opposition to God's gospel that's going to stop the mighty hands of God. It's just not going to happen. So we rest secured knowing that God is the perfect author of justice. And so our call, our call to faithfulness is not hating your enemy, loving your enemy. Not being apathetic towards those who would oppose us, but praying for them, praying for those who would persecute us. We are called to go above and beyond and leave God to be the one who
who is just. Leave justice into his hands. And then never forget, church, that prior to your conversion, you were an enemy of God. Seeking out the things of the world, rebelling against your creator, and praise God, he looked at you in your rebellion with mercy. Praise God that he pulled us from our sinking ships and breathed new life into us. He gave us new life. Remember your salvation. Remember the one who saved you. And then as we look outward, as we remember that work that has been done within, may we then go and be salt and light to a world that needs salt and light. May we love those who oppose us. Pray for those who persecute us. Go the extra mile with those that would demand a mile of you. Give a cloak to one that demands a tunic. And if somebody seeks to slap you across the face and humiliate you, remember that you have been humbled in the most incredible way through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remembering your brokenness, remembering that his forgiveness is perfect and complete, and then walking in the light of who he is. Church, let us be a people that love those who oppose us well. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be faithful to your words. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear the need to go above and beyond, to love those who are difficult to love, to love those who would persecute us, to love our enemy. God, that you would not just let it be something that is theoretical, but instead it would be something that we are marked by. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to go out into a world that is dying and help breathe life into it. God, I pray that you would help us not to somehow over-commentate on these passages and justify ourselves in how we are not loving our enemies so that we would feel better about it, but instead you would help us to pray and love those around us well. Lord, I specifically lift up anyone this morning that does not know you, does not love you, is not following you. God, I pray that you would convict them of their brokenness right now. I pray that you would give them the, the reminder that they need a Savior and that you would just make yourself known to them. I pray that they would know the work you did on the cross, the fact that you paid the price for their sin, and I pray that they would respond in, in, in the only way that we could respond is, is that I follow you, Jesus. I love you, I submit to you. God, you are good. We love you, it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.